everybody welcome to the hiking my feelings virtual campfire my name is sydney williams and i am the author and founder of hiking my feelings for anybody that's new here we are an organization on a mission to improve community health by creating opportunities for people to experience the healing power of nature and the virtual campfire was born out of our inability to do that in person this year so what started as a fundraiser back in may and june is now back every thursday at 3 p.m pacific we go live on youtube you can also join the virtual uh, campfire VIPs if you want to get in on the Zoom meeting. And today's guest, I am so freaking excited. Miss Emily Isaacs is a wilderness therapist and she has been working at the intersection of mental health and wilderness for over 15 years. She draws her expertise from extensive time working outdoors with Knowles, Outward Bound, and Open Sky Wilderness Therapy, clinical work in wilderness, hospital, crisis, and private practice settings, and four years as the executive director of Women's Wilderness. Emily brings together her knowledge and passion, helping people transform through trauma, grief, anxiety, and depression via mindfulness and nature-based therapy. She loves exploring the mountains with her two younger daughters, and you can learn more about Emily Isaacs at emilyisaacscounseling.com. I'm going to pretend like this is The Price is Right, so without further ado, Emily Isaacs, come on down. <laughs> Yay! Yay! You're the lucky winner! <laughs> So Emily, um, I gave like the intro that we share when we're like feeling fancy on websites, but I would love to hear a little bit about you in your own words, specifically what led you to therapy and did you start with nature therapy or did you kind of like wiggle your way into the wilderness? Yeah, that's a great question, Sydney. Hmm, and a big one. <laughs> <laughs> so this will connect back actually to an activity we're all gonna do today, a little experiential. Um, but I think we're really going to say, where did I start this work and how did it start? It would be from, I grew up in the middle of San Francisco in the city um, and really smack dab in the middle of the city in the Haight-Ashbury. And there was a really big park across the street from my house. And so we would go walking in the park and we would, when it was, there were big rain puddles, um, we would find worms and we would collect beetles and we would make little tiny tree forts. And just, I think that was sort of the first connection of just that even though I was in the middle of the city, there was this really special um, place that I would go out and connect with outdoors. Um, over time, I actually, I graduated from college and I thought that I was going to be a traditional classroom teacher as in like indoors in the classroom. And I did that for a year. And one day I found a poem on the Xerox machine as I was doing Xeroxes to do a lot as classroom teacher. Um, and it was Robert Frost's A Path, um, two, woods two Paths Diverged in a Wood. You know, the, this really famous poem where he's contemplating these two paths in the middle of a forest and which one do I take? And then in the ends, it ends with, I took the one less traveled by. 
I'm actually giving myself a little shivers right now because at 22, that really got right to my heart of like, I want to take the path that is in my heart. And that was always doing things outdoors. And that's where I felt like my best self. So that led to really taking the path that felt less traveled and often less understood by my family and the people I'd grown up with led to about 15 years of working outdoors. So at points that was year round working in the desert with you know, the different names sort of slung around here, at-risk youth, troubled teens, adjudicated youth, really like teenagers, <laughs> kids who are 13 to some, some young adults, 28, were like confused and lost and grasping at straws and figuring out how to live their lives in this sometimes really messy world. And so I was working with them as um, an instructor. So I wasn't a therapist. I was the one sleeping in the dirt next to them all season, sometimes the snow, um, just under these giant mountains, helping them find themselves. And I just loved that work. Like I, it just got me to the core and I still do. Um, I dabbled around with non-therapeutic programs, um, Outward Bound, I worked with just sort of general admissions kids, same with Natural, National Outdoor Leadership School. And I just felt like, ah, something's missing. Like I, I like being in the thick of it with people and sitting around a fire, just like really slowing down and getting to the meat. Like what's at your core? What does your heart long for? What do you really wanna do in the world? What makes you sad? Um, just telling our stories. I mean, what, you get this. Love it. So that was what really lit me up. Um, and I loved, and eventually there's a point where you're like, wow, most people seem to do this work for a year and then move on. And here I am. And it's been like 10 years. <laughs> okay. You know, like a lot of people as young adults are like, I'm going to go on an adventure. And they're like, okay, now back to normal life. And I just really was like, no, this is what I want. And so there kind of got to be a point where I saw it further. You know, I was like, what does this look like to do um, in a slightly more stable life environment? And like, like thirties <laughs> and forties and fifties. <laughs> and so I went back to school um, at Naropa, which is a really amazing university in Boulder, Colorado, that focuses on the Buddhist tradition and mindfulness as um, within their therapy program as a healing resource. And this radical concept in mental health that we are not broken, that we are ultimately, we are whole and that we have basic goodness, that we are just basically good at our core. And so again, Sydney's like, yeah, again. I just want to jump around and dance. I want to go to this school. I want to go through that program. <laughs> yeah. It's pretty amazing. Your tie-dye is already jumping around and dancing. <laughs> so I went there for a degree in counseling psychology um, and then and graduated now six and a half years ago and have done a number of things from there. But one of them has been really um, building my private practice, working with clients um, individually and as couples um, these days on the computer often, but I've worked, I work with people outdoors in the office and find ways to bring nature and nature connection 
um, into the office and even when we're online and which is totally possible and really relevant and powerful more than ever. And, and now today I'm also teaching for Naropa um, for their wilderness therapy program. So that hopefully that wasn't too long. No, <laughs> that was that fantastic. I'm like, tell me more, Emily. <laughs> yeah. So, wow. I, I love this. So you never were a regular therapist in a clinic doing stuff that wasn't outdoors. Like you jumped straight into wilderness therapy as a transition from instructing in the outdoors. Kind of not totally accurate. I did after school, um, work in some more traditional settings. Like I've worked in a hospital on a psych ward, um, with people, you know, having clinical mental health emergencies. Um, I've worked at a walking clinic and a phone clinic. Um, and so I've worked in some more traditional settings, um, but by and large, the meat of my experience um, really was working in the field with, with kids, with teens and young adults, and then in my private practice. I dig it. Oh, I love it. So you've been talking about, um, you wanted to lead us through like an experiential yeah. thing today. Is this a good yeah. time to do that? Because I think that's <laughs> really fun. Totally. Cool. So everyone who's present today, um, there will be a chance to participate just in a few minutes. So just sort of put that in your awareness. So if you want to, after we do this experiential, offer your, you know, your questions or your experience or just share what comes up for you, that's going to be available. So, um, this is how actually I start almost every session with clients in person, outdoors or online. Just want each of you to take a moment to find your seat. So what that just means is you can close your eyes or lower your gaze and just begin to bring your awareness to the sensation of contact, like feeling your body on your chair or your couch or just wherever you are. And so this is really just simply noting the sensation. Any contact points. So right now for me, that looks like I can feel the rug against my toes and it's a little bumpy. I can feel the couch under my seat. And so just track that for a moment for yourself. And then when you're ready, you can begin to notice your breath. And the big piece around this is mindfulness activities often have really simple instructions um, but the practice itself is actually really complicated and challenging sometimes. So it's like just recognizing if this is tricky for you, that's normal. Really, this the basic instruction is just to notice the sensation of your breath. If you go to thoughts, just coming back to noticing your breath. And so what we're going to transition to now 
So if you don't already have closed eyes, I think it's really helpful to close your eyes or just to lower your gaze and kind of look somewhere really neutral where you're not getting a lot of input. We just did a little grounding activity. What we're going to do is a practice around a spot in nature. And I do this with clients all the time. So what I want you to do is to picture somewhere in nature, it can be real or it can be imagined. Like it can be from a book or from a movie if that works for you. Um, but if you have somewhere that's real, that you have a relationship that comes up, go with that. Like somewhere that you visit and you know, and it doesn't have to be somewhere super exotic. It could be the tree, you know, in your backyard or at a park. And I want you to start with really noticing what you see. So noticing the colors, Noticing the light. Noticing if there are any animals around, the plants, the ground, the view. Just really get a, a look around. And then begin to notice what you hear. Maybe it's the wind or birds. Maybe there's animals or squirrels or water. Just really turn on your ears and, and see what you hear in this place. And now bring on your smell. Just notice what you smell. Can you smell the dirt or the rain or dust or trees? Just take a really big breath in, kind of taking that in. And now notice what your body feels. So maybe you feel the wind on your skin. Maybe it's a little cold or a little hot or humid. Are you moving around a lot or just sitting? Just get a sense of what your body feels like in this place. And now just one piece we're gonna do, kind of wrapping up here. If this place is a real place, I want you to send out, if you want, if this feels right, just sort of connect to it. That it's like, it's out there in the real world. You're just not there right now. And you can kind of send out a little bit of like a hello to it. Just acknowledging that that land is really there 
there are animals and plants that are making it, you know, that it's home just right now. And that those natural rhythms and processes and the sun and the wind and maybe the tides, like whatever it is, is just happening there right now, this instant. And just notice what that's like for you. And just take a couple more breaths here. And as you begin to bring yourself back, what I want you to notice is what does your body feel like just right now? Noticing tight or open breath, heart rate maybe, just kind of get an overall sense of your internal weather and what going to this place was like for you, what it did inside your body. So I want to open it up right now. And just if anyone has any comments, observations, just throw them out to the group. Woo, woo. That was nice. Thank you. I got to go back to Yosemite on top of the waterfall that we slept oh. in. And I was like, yes, because that one is just like all water all the time. And we went, um, it was end of August, beginning of September when we went. So the water was low on the falls. So most of the falls where there would normally be water just rushing over were bare. So you could see the granite and how the water had carved it out. And like it made, I, I ate dinner in like a naturally made granite couch, like just in a rivet, like legs up, reclining, like in a couch made by water. And thank you for taking me back to that place. That was lovely. Sydney, what did you, what did you notice just in your body being there? Uh, just, I well in my body here presently in my van <laughs> in a parking lot at Starbucks um I felt like exactly how I did when I was sitting there just completely at peace comfortable in my body proud of what it's able to do for me and just chill like that was everything I needed and then some I'm really glad we're recording this so I can watch it all the time <laughs> awesome <laughs> thank you see, I see Mary and Alexis and Beth all of their cameras on does anyone else want to throw something out of just what that was like for you what you noticed or questions comments I will um that was fantastic I at first I was seated when we started and then I really wanted to lay down so I, I moved into a bed and laid down and I went to the beach at Little Harbor on Catalina Island I visited there yesterday in my meditation class as well. So it was really nice to go back two days in a row. Mm. Um, and I just felt really at peace and um, I could just like feel and hear the rhythm of the waves. And um, in real life, when I went there for the first time a few weeks ago, it was really, really, really hard to get there. And in this meditation, I was feeling that same, like, relief and pride of actually making it there. So I was able to, that feeling just kind of came back to me in the meditation. So that was really cool. And I'm right now preparing to go to a social event, which I haven't done in many, many months. And I was really anxious. And so this was wonderful to put me in a much better place before I leave. So thank you. So cool. Mary, you just did this. You did what this is intended for. <laughs> you did. Well, you helped me. So thank you. <laughs> I feel like I maybe paid you to say that. It's like, yeah, that's exactly, <laughs> this is a tool for self-regulation. 
I'm like, when you get anxious to come back to more grounded and calm. So. Yeah. And I'm not at the point yet where I, I, I know to tap into that. Like I, I use this tool all the time, but it's like a scheduled thing that I do. I haven't gotten to that point yet where like, as I'm rushing around getting ready, I wouldn't have thought to just go there and meditate or do some kind of mindfulness exercise. So um, this was just a gift. So thanks. Mm, Cool. Anyone else? Yeah, I'll share. I, this was super awesome. I definitely agree with that. Um, For me, I, I've had a few stressful days and it's been a pretty busy week and just before I got on this, I was like, you know, I really like need a massage or something right now. So this exercise was really cool. And what I did, so the place that I went to, um, it's about two weeks ago or three weeks ago, I can't remember, but um, some of you that are in the Hiking My fam- hiking my Feelings family know I did a 26 mile hike um, nice. around the lake and then last week I went paddleboarding on that lake and I felt just like super connected to the land and just like very grounded when I was there and being able to tap into that feeling just sitting here on the floor in in this room felt really powerful and like super grounding and I, I also feel like a stress relief you know, has been lifted. So thank you for that. That was, I I had never considered before just putting myself in nature in my mind. So what a great tool. (laughs) Awesome. And you have that beautiful background too. Thank you. Yeah. I I tried to bring nature inside. So. (laughs) And now you're finding out you have nature in here. Yeah. It's, it's like everywhere. (laughs) So thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Anyone else want to share? I guess my experience was good, but it was a mixed bag because I found myself going to this favorite beach in Michigan on Lake Huron. And it's a place where I, my grandparents used to take me, but I used to go there a lot. And um, it's just a really little, lovely little stretch of beach. And it's on Lake Huron, but you can actually depending on the time of day you're there, you can see either the sunrise or sunset. Cause it's like on, it's like kind of in the thumb. <laughs> we always do that in Michigan, but it's like kind of down here. And so we would, my daughter and I even, sometimes I would take a drive out there and uh, it's connected to like a state park and it's a wooded, you know, like little stretch of sand. And most of the time there's no one there. And so it was like, you had this little stretch of beach all to yourself, but it was just like one of my favorite places. And it was really peaceful. And I could just picture myself like going down the stairs in the lake and just all of it. But I always feel like I connect with my ancestors there. So I found myself getting a little bit sad. I don't know if that happens to people, but. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense given the context of where you chose, you know? Does that sadness, are you, do you go by Beth Ann, both, both names? Beth or Beth Ann. Mm-hmm. Okay. Is that sadness something that feels just nourishing or just like there's a part of it that's good to feel right now? Or is it like, well, this is kind of too much right now? Um, I guess just because, I mean, it is a good feeling because it makes me feel connected to them. Yeah. 
but was, the way you were talking about it. Hmm, say that again. Like a longing that you can't really. Like it just took me aback because I wasn't expecting to go to that place. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah, yeah. We'll talk a little bit more about this in a, in a moment. This exercise sort of as a, as a self-regulation tool generally is like, oh, this is just to bring me to a calm place. I guess I also though I'm oriented in those such like the way that I work of like, and if what's coming up for you is sadness, like then maybe this is a place that isn't your calm place and you find somewhere else that works like that for you if you start finding like, oh, this is coming up. But it also sounds like the sadness just needs like a little tenderness and love of just like, oh, like that longing and that there's something really beautiful there of connection. Definitely a beautiful place. Yeah. I'm just going to throw this out there as an idea um, and could apply to, you know, anyone working with a practice like this. So I wonder in the future, Bethann, like what it might be like to like invite your ancestors there, like in the visualization and just work with that, you know, and just allow the sadness and allow the longing. Anyone else have something that they want to throw out there? Okay, I'm going to talk a little bit about what this exercise is and why it works and what it does. Um, so our brains are amazing. <laughs> that really that we can picture um, an activity or a place and that even though we aren't there, What's happening is that similar pathways, neural pathways are firing. So similar connections are being made. And so really when we, you know, elite athletes do this, I don't know if you ever did this in your athletic career, Sydney, that before a performance, um, you practice the performance. Like I always think of gymnastics, sort of like landing that final jump and landing of like visualizing yourself doing that because it fires off those neurons, you know, because it fires off like a really high percentage of the similar neurons and pathways that it will fire when you actually do the performance. So because of that, when we picture our um, special place um, in nature, it actually really brings up a lot of the same somatic, like body feelings and sensations that we would have when we were really there. It actually really tells our nervous system, I'm in a place that's good. Like I'm in a calm place that is nourishing for me. And so the magic of that is that you can be in your bedroom or the parking lot of Starbucks and regulate your nervous system, bring your nervous system when you're feeling maybe a little anxious or a little down and bring it into a medium, so calm, alert place by practicing an activity like this. Um, and the part of me that is not just a traditional therapist, but it is a transpersonal wilderness therapist, um, I feel like there's also a deeper piece of actually just like honoring that connection to that land of like Yosemite or the lake or Catalina, these places are real. 
and like acknowledging them and connecting to them, even though we're not actually there at the moment. Um, and I think human beings need that more than ever these days. So I'm going to pull something up here and do a little bit of psychoeducation. And then we'll also talk about more nature too. Is that cool, Sydney? Absolutely. Okay. So let me find my screen share button. Share screen. There. Okay. So I'm going to zoom in. <laughs> you don't need to like get out the binoculars yet. Um, really what Sydney is doing with hiking my feelings is healing trauma work, really powerful of giving you all um, tools to work with traumatic experiences, really scary experiences, feelings where we feel lost and ungrounded, um, which all of us have somewhere in our systems. All of us have experienced some type of trauma. Um, can be either a little T trauma, <laughs> my little T, or a big T trauma of like a really, really big acute event or small, smaller life events where we lose our sense of safety um, and groundedness, maybe even just for a little bit. Um, and so inherently it's like the, what we do to heal trauma is find safety again um, and cultivate feelings of safety, or if that's a really intense word, just calmness in our lives and in our bodies. And so that's what we were just doing with that, that practice. So I'm going to start to zoom in here. This handout I love, it's called How Trauma Can Affect, Affect Your Window of Tolerance. And y'all can look this up online simply by Googling window of tolerance and looking at images and you will find this image. So I'm going to, and I'll email it to Sydney too later. So I'm going to zoom in. Um, actually, I'm not yet. I'm first going to give a little background. Hold on. So um, our nervous systems are really amazing. First, the nervous system is the systems in our body that tell us to get going or tell us to slow down. They're in all mammals. It's a biological phenomenon that <laughs> um, keeps us alive. Um, so the get going side is like waking up in the morning and like, okay, I'm awake and now I need to get out of bed and have breakfast. And so our nervous system starts powering up towards arousal, um, getting activated. I need to do something. Um, on the other end, we eat, say we eat dinner. It's delicious. We, you know, we eat food. And then afterwards we're like, oh, I'm going to sort of lounge on the couch a little bit. And that's more like slowing down, going towards rest and digest. I'm going to get ready for bed. So, and the nervous system sort of moves in waves throughout the day of something that you need to get active for. Now I'm going to calm down. Something that you need to pay. Oh, an email come in, comes in that's really important. I'm going to get alert. I responded to it. I put out the energy. Now I can calm down. And so ideally we kind of operate in waves, gentle waves. However, most of us in Western society don't do that so much. We operate more on kind of like a wild ro roller coaster or the roller coaster is really jacked up in the sky or the roller coaster is actually more like a submarine ride. Like we're kind of, a lot of us are the term, the dysregulated. Our nervous systems are just kind of not working in that gentle wave fashion um, because the worlds we live in are radically different than when human beings evolved. We spend 
most of us, very little time in nature, sort of what our bodies are evolved to be around. And we spend our time in really um, either very, very high stimulus environments or, or low stimulus environments, kind of like not enough, you know, really ideal for the human system. So this is a handout that visualizes this. So I'm going to zoom in. Whoop, not that much. Stay, start here. So ideally, I was just talking about those waves. When our waves are gentle and we're getting a little bit, of, you know, a little bit alert and then getting calm, that's us in the window of tolerance. This is where our body can handle and our system, our brain, our emotions can handle what life is throwing at us. So you're calm, but not tired, alert, but not anxious. Really mindfulness people talk about this like alert, relaxed and alert. And that's really where our bodies are built to be most of the time, like say 80% of the time. Then I'm gonna go up, say an email comes in and it's like, oh gosh, this is from my boss or my teacher and they want something now that I'm not prepared for. This is like, we often feel our heart rates go up. Maybe our throat gets kind of tight, little butterflies in the stomach, but some sort of physical reaction response will happen. And that's where we're getting maybe just a little dysregulated, a little agitated, anxious, revved up, maybe a little angry. You're not out of control, but you're also not comfortable. You're just kind of a little bit out of your window of tolerance. Um, the nervous system wing that is for activating got pumped on board, sending hormones to your system of like, get up and go, something might be threatening here. So when we get a little dysregulated, it's generally a lot of us have some tools to come back to the window. Like we take some deep breaths, we talk to a friend, we write the email, and then we kind of come back to okay. Sometimes though, things happen that are so scary or chronically stressful that we really start going to hyper arousal. And this is where you get really anxious, angry, or feeling out of control. And this is really fight or flight. Like as mammals, if you were a deer on out in the fields that you'd be like, I need to get out of here. Like this is a dangerous situation. We get even more hormones flooded to our system. And maybe we, and our frontal cortex or thinking brain doesn't get as much blood. The blood all goes to the back, the survival part of your brain. That's like, I need to survive. <laughs> I'm not going to detailed think about my next move and what could I do tomorrow? That's thinking brain, frontal cortex. We get to like re reactionary. I need to get out now, 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 what do I do? Kind of uh, black and white thinking may feel really emotional, angry, extremely anxious, pounding heart, rapid breathing, um, feeling of like blood rushing to your limbs, which biologically would be getting you ready to run. Um, it's again, a biological state. None of this is about right or wrong or being a good person or not. This is about just what our mammal bodies have evolved to do to keep us alive. 
Um, and for, I mean, I imagine all of us in some ways are familiar with these states. So just a little dysregulated and then hyper aroused. So down here, we also have a wing, the rest and digest wing of our nervous system. So when that gets pumped on in just like a, a small way, it would be like, oh, I'm drowsy and I just ate dinner and it's been a big day and I'm gonna go to bed. What happens though, um, over time when that gets pumped on more, um, because the idea is that when up here we aren't able to fight or run away, like we don't, we don't have the option, we don't know what to do, we feel really stuck, we're literally trapped, like in a really traumatic, scary situation, what happens is that the other wing of our nervous system, the rest and digest, also has a function for freeze. And so a little bit of that freeze quality could be, I feel like I'm shutting down. Like maybe there's been a time in your life when someone's tried to have a hard, this happens to me. My husband's trying to have a hard conversation with me and I'm like, Oh, I'm so tired. <laughs> and it took him pointing that out to me. Gosh, every time we try and talk about X, Y, Z, you get really tired. And I was like, yeah, I'm tired. And then I was like, huh, interesting. <laughs> so it could be that a little spacey. Maybe you start yawning a bunch, lose track of time. or start to feel really sluggish. Um, oh my gosh, I have so many things on my work list. I don't even know what to do. I don't know how to take charge of them. I just feel helpless. I feel like totally overwhelmed. That's a little bit of that dysregulated down. Um, when that gets, whoops, doesn't want me to do more. I'm just gonna zoom in just a tidbit more here. As that intensifies, say you get, that happens chronically, or maybe you're in a truly life threatening emergency or something that, that just feels life-threatening. Like it could just be something that's triggering a life-threatening type thought or experience. We go towards hypo arousal. That's where you get really zoned out or numb emotionally and physically, like feeling blank. Um, you might have a little bit of an auto body experience. You might feel really frozen, not even able to move. And this is where this generally happens for folks who've experienced big T traumas, like really, really scary. We talk, you know, sexual assault, being in a violent crime, um, being in a situation where, the, where it's like you really can't run away and you really can't fight, um, that helpless feeling. And that's in our nervous system, you know, and, and originally that was a really adaptive going frozen is for the deer, it's playing dead. And that gives the deer a chance actually to survive for the lion to be like, oh, I'm not interested in you <laughs> and to run off, right? And the deer survives and kind of shakes it off and gets to tell itself, oh, I'm over it. It's over. It's complete. Um, and they move on with their life and they go back to window of tolerance. However, as people we often get really stuck. We're really in these intense environments. And we also live in a, um, I'm having our temple with the word, invalidating environment. Like our culture does not validate those who have survived trauma. Um, they often, particularly our culture doesn't validate women's experiences. 
And so we don't get this understanding of, oh, this is what you went through. This is what you need. I'm going to witness you. I'm going to hear your story. You know, I'm, I can hold this. It's like, we don't get that often. And so we get into a place where we get chronically stuck, you know, of like, then something that reminded me of the scary incident, either shot me down to dysregulated or hypo aroused or shot me up to hyper aroused. And so our nervous systems get into places where our window of tolerance starts to really shrink and we spend less time there. And that's the effect of trauma on our bodies. And so what, I know this is a ton of information. <laughs> I'm like reminding myself to take a breath. So what we can do through the work that Sydney's offering and the work that therapists such as myself offer is to help people grow their window of tolerance back again. So you can come back to a place where more of the time you feel calm and alert by practicing things like what we just did of practicing with the special place in nature and wiring your brain to remember that. So when you get just a little bit dysregulated, just a little bit agitated and anxious, or just a little bit frozen, just a little bit, not a little bit spacey, you can go to say the secret space, sorry, the special space and sort of bring yourself back. Um, Mindfulness practice is such as simply feeling your seat on the chair, same thing. It's orienting your body to right here, right now, rather than the scary or upsetting thing that happened yesterday or way back when. I'm here right now, I'm here right now, updating your brain and bringing your thinking brain, your frontal cortex on board. So I just said a ton. <laughs> I'm going to stop my share and see what questions people have. Well, first of all, thank you. That is the most thorough explanation of what I experienced in the outdoors and in my body as I was connecting the dots on trauma ever. Like I, I sometimes I'm like, okay, well, I know that I've like, I've lived this. Like I have like hiking my feelings is exactly the process you just described is like, you find yourself as you're hiking, you find yourself in a state of dysregulation or the word is slipping the one that's not dysregulation and you're going either hypo or hypo on hyper or hypo on where you're at on that scale and then finding a way to bring it back because you're in the outdoors and the outdoors can handle it and you have the space to process like yes I have lived this but I've never on I've never been exposed to the clinical terms for it so first of all thank you I feel like I just went through like how to hike your feelings 101 with like the language that describes what's actually happening in our brains and bodies um, but the part that I thought was really interesting, and you did mention this, was the hypoarousal, particularly with folks of sexual or that have survived sexual assault. That is me to a T. Like I basically laid there and played dead, and it wasn't a choice. But I, I woke up and I was being sexually assaulted, and I was just like, "Well, fighting back could probably lead to death." I think I don't know. Like black and white thinking, you're not really there's no nuance. And I was just like, "Okay, well." Uh, in other chapters of my life, like my father was not a physically abusive person, but when he would get irritated and he would yell a lot, if I just pretended like I was taking a nap, I could avoid the aftermath of what happens when dad yells at you. So I was like, oh, well, I'll just pretend I'm sleeping. So like, it wasn't a conscious choice, but looking back in it, 
I was like, well, I guess that makes sense. Like that's how I avoided scary things in the home. So it would make sense that that's how my body responded in an emergency situation. And it's just nice to know that like, I'm not the only person because for a while, like you're hundred percent right. When you talk about society being invalidating of women's experiences or invalidating in general, especially women's experiences with trauma, that was one of the reasons that I didn't talk about my sexual assault for so long was because like, why didn't I fight back? Like I didn't have the answers. And so I was just like, oh, well, I guess I must've wanted it if I didn't kick or push him off me, you know, like, because those are the kinds of narratives that survivors get thrown at them left and right the second that they open their mouth. And that's why so many people don't report. That's why so many folks don't go to the hospital because reporting and going through the process of getting a rape kit and everything else like that can be as traumatizing as the trauma itself so thank you for giving me language and i know that there's a ton of survivors in our community that i know have been struggling with understanding why they respect reacted the way they did or or didn't um compared to what they thought they should do but like as you're saying a lot of this is a biological process it has nothing to do with if we're good people or not so I just really feel incredibly validated in hearing about like what the window of tolerance is and going up or down with it. So thank you. Yeah, absolutely. You're hitting the nail on the head, Sydney. I really appreciate that. I mean, it's like, yeah, you're not in your thinking brain in those really scary, overwhelming situations. Like you're, you're reacting. You're not, you're a deer, like deciding to play dead. Yeah. (laughs) What can I do here? There's not really any choices. Yeah. And so it's like understanding that. And it's like, yeah, to go get a rape kit or all these different things. It's like, yeah. And to encounter potentially a, a then validating narrative, like who? Yeah. The power of disbelief is just yeah. as powerful as the power of somebody believing your story. So yeah, yeah, that's yeah. wow. That's good. Does anybody in the um, zoom have anything that came up for them or anything that they feel comfortable sharing for that? Cause I know that I just felt like I was, I just felt incredibly seen during that entire description of that graphic. <laughs> hey, Alexis. Hey, it's, I'm realizing it's really dark, so <laughs> I'm going to try to turn on a light, <laughs> but, um, I, I have two questions. Um, maybe I'll just sit up here. There you go. <laughs> um, so one, and it's just sort of like two things. I'm not exactly sure what my questions are. So I'm going to borrow Vicky's approach <laughs> and share some information and maybe you can help me figure it out. So something that I've noticed, like I've realized how much I've suppressed emotions for years Um And I'm sort of wondering how that could be connected to the hypo arousal state. And then for me, I've realized that I've had some like different events that seem to be adding a compounding effect. Mm. Um, And I'm wondering if that has maybe like slowly shifted my window of tolerance in a certain way. Um, For example, I also had a sexual assault um, experience and I was in a relationship with a narcissist for many years. Um, So yeah, those were just some of the, some of the thoughts I had. And I wondered if you could comment on that at all. 
Yeah, Alexis, great approach. Just throwing out <laughs> some things and I hear the questions in there. So I can't, um, I'm going to provide just some general ideas around trauma and then you can sort of see how this fits for you. So one is, yes, I think that often folks who get stuck in the hypo aroused place often can feel like less access to emotions. Um, so I think that that makes sense that you're drawing that connection. Okay. Um, there can be a lot of different reasons that people stuff um, and maybe don't try not to feel emotions, like lots, lots, lots. <laughs> That's a huge piece that I do with people in therapy, like every day. And then I work with, with myself um, most every day as well. But the hypoarousal state, that could be part of that, that you're tasting. Um, I think your instincts make sense there. Um, the other piece is that information, so when we're in a really, really scary situation, biologically, it's really important for us to remember that situation, right? Like, as if we don't remember it as just like animals running around on the plains, then it would happen again and we'd be hosed, right? And so our brains are really wired to encode and remember the scary things. Actually, often sort of the negative bias of our brains, often more than the positive things, um, which is this whole other ball of wax. Yeah. So when something though really scary happens um, and when we don't process it fully and kind of let our bodies know that's really over, it can get into kind of an isolated pocket. Like you can get kind of um, in a little like frozen part of our brain where that memory isn't really connected to a lot of other stuff. And then what happens is that when similar type things like say being, like saying being in a car accident and then maybe there's a situation where um, you have to throw on your brakes and it's not a car accident. You're okay. But you get really a rush of intense feelings or go a little, go towards that hypo aroused frozen place out of body experience. It's because those few triggers of like what it felt slamming on the brakes, for instance, in your body is like zoop, leads you right back to this is what it felt like when the really scary thing like it just like wakes that up. It's got kindling and being rekindled okay. like this scary traumatic memory. And so, yeah, I think over time when more scary experiences sort of all link up with it, I think that sometimes our experiences can intensify and our symptoms can intensify and our window can shrink if they aren't processed. I mean, this is sort of one of the points of going to see a trauma therapist is that really a skilled ther trauma therapist, the idea is that you start to sort of thaw out that pocket of memory and help it connect to other parts of your brain. Like for instance, what that means is like, maybe there's some other part of your brain that really, especially frontal cortex, it really knows I'm safe. Like, or I'm good. Like I'm a good person. Except in this little part, there's this frozen thought of like, shame and self-blame, self -blame, right? Or a feeling of like, I'm not safe. 
And so it's like literally starting to connect those parts. So there's more communication so that when you think about ultimately the idea is that when you think about or the memory gets lit up of the scary thing that you also have thoughts quickly of like, I did the best I could and I'm safe now. And then that comes quickly and is connected. Does that? That's really helpful. Yeah. And I really like the imagery of having a portion of my brain frozen and just kind of like needing to get it to connect to other areas. So yeah, yeah. thank you. Thank you for your, your insight. Yeah, absolutely. A question that I had. Um, so as it pertains to mindfulness in a state of like when you're triggered and you're feeling one of these things. Um, Cause I'm, I, my rewind. So I didn't tell anybody for 11 years. I suppressed that I developed unhealthy coping mechanisms like eating and drinking my feelings, which when I got diagnosed with type two diabetes, I couldn't do those anymore if I wanted to also manage the disease. So finding hiking allowed me to one, replace unhealthy coping mechanisms, but two, also get to a place where I could access these kinds of things, like the, the root of the why I was hiking or eating and drinking my feelings to begin with. I didn't have that answer when I was first diagnosed. And when I first thought, oh, I'm hiking my feelings, like I was like, oh, that's nice. But why was I eating and drinking my feelings to begin with? So like, what is it about spending time in the wilderness or going to the na going to nature in your mind or bringing it inside your home that allows us to access those frozen parts of our brain? Is it just like, we're erasing the distractions, like we're not numbing, like what, is there a physical process that's happening that can connect the dots between like the trauma and the disease? Yeah, I think that's a great question, Sydney. And I'm so, you're, yeah. <laughs> Going exactly where I was hoping to go. Cool, good. So, there are a couple things. So eating a lot um, and drinking are often pretty numbing things. Like, especially drinking. It can take us more to hypo arousal, and it doesn't give us more information. <laughs> it covers up or it numbs. When we hike, um, and people, this is, there's definitely a way that people with um, really doing a lot of athletic stuff can get like, people can use that to not pay attention to what's going on inside them as well. <laughs> so I'll name that. So there's sort of a piece though, that I think in the sweet spot with hiking is that we're embodied. Like we're moving around and we're outdoors. Outdoors is naturally like sensuous, like it's sense rich. There's sounds, there's feelings, there's um, smells, there's sights. It, there are things that are naturally set up to help us come back into our bodies. And again, ideally in a way that doesn't feel overly activating. I mean, I've certainly had days on the trail where I'm alone or somewhere I'm familiar and I'm like anxious the whole time. So that can happen too. So it's like, where's your sweet spot? of like getting to be alert and calm on the trail. And it sounds like Sydney, what you really accessed was that of getting to be physical in your body and you know, doing something that helped you become more alert and more aware of what was going on in you. 
in a, this naturally supportive environment of nature and sort of um, sensory rich. I'll throw out another thing is a lot of your experiences sound like they're with your partner and someone that you feel really good with. And that's another piece that's healing is relationship and being with people that we feel good with. Um, and so that is, you know, it's like, that's sort of one of the other goals of therapy is to form a partnership and alliance with someone you feel good with um, and supported by. And so it's like kind of that sweet combo of being out in nature, um, in your body, physical, moving, and with someone that you feel connected with. It's like, yeah, that's, that's natural medicine. Does that answer? Yeah, I love that. Because I, I think the, the question that's bouncing around in my mind, and like, I, I know that there's research about how like trauma is stored in the body, whether it's the frozen part of your brain, yoga explains it as being like memory or trauma can be stored in the hips. Um, and I think like the question that I've been exploring and like the work that I do with hiking my feelings is like exploring how trauma is manifests in our minds and bodies and how the outdoors can help us heal. And so then I think about with diabetes as a, as a example is like, if we break that into like racial groups, if you look at the prevalence of diabetes in different race groups, like Native Americans, highest prevalence of diabetes. Think about the trauma that that community has faced. Black community, high prevalence of diabetes. Think about the trauma that that community has faced. So while I don't know, like certainly I'm not a doctor and I haven't done like clinical research to support this, but I wonder like is in particular with type two diabetes, because so much of it is lifestyle based and rooted, I think, in trauma, like if we can get to the root of the trauma, then can we eradicate diabetes? Like theoretically, like obviously this isn't an answer, a question we can answer today on this virtual campfire, but this is the thing that I'm exploring because I experienced that in my own body. Like I was diagnosed, I replaced my coping mechanisms as a function of managing diabetes, which uncovered the trauma that led to the diagnosis. So it's like kind of yeah. like this zigzag pattern. And when I'm thinking about National Diabetes Awareness Month and our upcoming campaign for Take a Hike Diabetes, it's like, where does trauma fit into this conversation? Because according to the US, or according to the American Diabetes Association, 49% of US adults are pre-diabetic or living with type two diabetes. Like mm -hmm. that's wild. Yeah. And from what I understand, like type one's a different ball of wax if there's some antibodies and an autoimmune component of that disease. But for the most part, type two, yeah, there's some pre genetic predisposition, but a lot of it sounds like it could be prevented. So can we make outdoor therapy more accessible? Can we do things mm -hmm. in our home for people that don't have access to therapy? Like what are some tools that people can do just out in nature or in their home that can help them find that place without, if they don't have access to like a clinical therapy situation? Totally. Um, two things. First, what your, your thought here on sort of the mind-body trauma, um, physical illness connection, I'm right there with you. So I'm going to actually pull this thing up one more time and just throw out there. So we talked about, this is the big picture. So we talked about how over time, when you have experienced a lot of trauma, your window of tolerance begins to get smaller because you're spending a lot of time in a hyper-aroused, hypo-aroused, or just dysregulated, right? And so really what that is, is, I mean, another way for thinking about that is stress. Yeah. And stress is taxing on the body. 
Like, as I was saying at one point, it's like deer, other mammals don't live 80% of their time hyper aroused or hypo aroused, hypo aroused. They would die. (laughs) They're in nature. They need to survive. It would be so taxing on their systems. A lot of the time they're just sort of hanging out and grazing. Or you think about apes, like, you know, grooming each other and being in social relationships and hanging out. Um, and then going into these extreme, these wings of the nervous system, hyper or hypo, when they need to, when the situation really calls for it. And so we've gotten in these situations where our bodies were on the roller coaster. And I mean, imagine riding a roller coaster. I'm going to stop the share here. Imagine riding a roller coaster day in, day out all the time. You would be exhausted and bruised yeah. and just like uh, traumatized and more apt to get ill in other ways. Yeah. You know, the immune system functions get depleted. And so there totally is a correlation between experiencing trauma and also physical illnesses. Like that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So that's that piece. The really cool piece about being human is that we, to a degree, can control our nervous system especially when we're in the closer into the window of tolerance states. And that's where I really suggest people work. Um, Just work with when you notice a little bit of, you know, heart pounding or butterflies. Just notice, work when you notice yourself a little bit numb or drowsy, just a little spacey. Um, On the spacey end, I recommend that people get more active, like get in, go outside, feel the cold air, do some run around the block, do some yoga, like get some movement to activate your system. On the more activated side, the more um, anxious side or sort of butterflies in the stomach, that's when you can use a practice more like the um, special place that we did at the beginning of our talk today. Um, However, you can also just really nurture your own window of tolerance and be like, fiercely protective of that window of tolerance through daily practices with nature. Um, And so this was something I was excited to share. So I'm going to share screen again. Um, uh Uh-oh. Hold on a second. Huh. Sydney, I'm having a, never mind. This is going to be one to work. I want to share a webpage. Advanced files. No, basic. Windows? No, I don't think that's it. Okay, I'm just going to talk about it. So, so there's some a great resource that I really like is the Wilderness Awareness School. Um, and what this is, maybe I don't know if here. I, oh, I'm going to share the link in chat. Yeah, there you go. And then I, I'll pull it up. You chat. I'll pull it up uh-huh. and I'll share my screen. Is that what you're looking for to pull up? Totally. So let's see, where is chat? Group chat. Thanks everyone, bear with. So the Wilderness Awareness School is a school that's in Washington and you can actually go there to take courses. And it's a lot, it's a lot of nature connection type skills. Um, But with this program, you can scroll down. There's a program called Kamana that is, um, 
Um, just a lot of typing, actually. So you can just see that this web page exists. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so this is just the Wilderness Awareness School, what their web page looks like. So the Kamana program, if you have the link now, you can check it out later, um, is a four-level program that's all about cultivating your connection in nature through some really wise ancient practices. Um, and there are two pieces of it. And one of it, and there, so there are four different books, and the first program is just a month long. And it walks you through, it's, and it's just really nice because it's very structured. Um, you can even have someone mentor you through it if you want to support. Because um, often we don't know where to start with this sort of stuff. One part of it is connecting with a place in nature that is really accessible to you. So for people who live in the city, it can be a park. It can literally be a little island of green, you know, down the street from your house. Like it's really helping people connect to the idea that nature is everywhere. You know, you're, the phases of the moon, like even if you live in a total concrete jungle, the phases of the moon are there to be checking out. I'm just like, do you know what phase of, moon, of the moon it is tonight? Where does the moon rise? Where does the sun rise? Where does the sun set? Just getting connected with these things that like our ancestors were connected with for millennia and reconnected can start to just, it just builds in sort of the sense of connection with the world and with the earth, which I think is inherently healing. Um, other pieces, so it's like basically this um, program and what you don't have to do the program to practice with, but it's like finding that special spot and they call it sit spot or secret spot that you return to multiple times a week and just a little visit and begin to build a relationship with it. Just really knowing like what tree is there? Is the grass brown right now because it's fall or is it getting green and is the snow melting? And just, it's like a friend or a neighbor that you're like really familiar with. Um, and then the other wing of practice that they do in Kamana is research. So really knowing, well, what tree is it? Do you even know? <laughs> like, oh, that's a Rocky Mountain maple. I found it in this book. Like there is something that is so empowering and cool about that. Because then you're like, oh, this is my neighbor. It's Rocky Mountain maple. I know this tree. And I think there's something also, and if you go sort of the transpersonal, bigger than human um, level, that's just realigning for us to have relationships like that with plants, animals, and places around us, rather than mostly relationship to our phone, our computer, and email, or work, or stress. It's like, and people, you know, and people are great to have relationship with, but there's also like, yeah, we can have a relationship to the tree outside and really know it a lot more than we realize. So give a little inspiration, like what this looks like in my world is that between two to four times a week, I take my two-year-old daughter and four-year-old daughter two miles up a paved bike path to a little spot that we discovered that you can see downtown Denver from and that there is a highway not very far from it and like a gravel pit, like factory thing. Like it's like a factory and all those are there and it's this little rim of rock and these ponderosa pines and these junipers and rubber rabbit brush 
and Dalmatian toad flax, which is a non-native and we've been pulling because we're just caring for the space. And I found something that I think might be an arrowhead there that I've tucked away into a secret part of the rock. And a friend of mine who knows this stuff says that he thinks it looks like it could be, but we don't really know, but it brings us magic. And when kids paintballed there, we like, we knew, and we picked up a bunch of garbage and we watched until the rain washed it away. And we know the birds that come there. And we know when the first Western meadow larks show up in the spring. And we just started going there this April. And so we haven't yet seen it in like the dead of winter. And so we're really curious, like what's gonna happen when it snows? What will it be like there? And so it's like, we're really developing a relationship with this place. And my two little girls who are really quite young, you know, the four-year-old, my four-year-old daughter knows the name of probably 15 plants that are at this spot. Like, I think we take it for granted that like, oh, well, kids, their minds are amazing. They know the name of all the superheroes or all the dinosaurs. And it's like, yeah, their minds are patterning. They're picking up patterns. They also could learn all the native plants really easily. We just have to bring them out there and get them excited about it. So we bring our books, we bring watercolors, we paint things. And, and it's, it's like very, it's um, the more you do it, the more robust it gets. Like the more that that relationship builds, just like you take a friend out for coffee once, like a new friend, and then you never hang out again. Like that's not really a friendship. But the more that again and again you spend time together, you start to know each other. And this is like the exact same thing of starting to know each other. Um, and so that is just like, I think the core practice that I really wanna share with people and offer and offer the resources of Kamana and Wilderness Awareness School to maybe dig into um, if you're curious or just begin to go outside. Like where is your little, where is your sit spot? Like, where can it be? You know, and you can often people go, oh, but it's not that beautiful or fancy. And it's like, sure, once a week, go somewhere fancy that you have to drive an hour to. But every day or a couple times a week, is there somewhere that's just a tree? It doesn't have to be a lot and that you can connect to and you can get curious about and even write down a little book like, what sort of tree is this? Or What's that? What are those bugs on its bark? And like begin to investigate. And the, the other piece, I don't use this so much. I am really book centric. <laughs> um, but I have friends who love the apps that you can take photos of things and it'll identify it for you. And so if that works for you, that works for you. It's like just gaining information and starting to get curious and light up what I think is really our natural proclivity to be curious and want to connect in nature. That's what our bodies evolved to do. Um, and I just, the relationship piece and that nature piece, and also the piece of just sort of quiet, they are all building that window of tolerance back again and finding somewhere that feels good. And it feels good to be outside. I love that so much. And one of the things that I, cause when we were when, like the first time we connected, you were talking about this, and I think you called it sense of place, right? Yeah. And I love this as a practice and I didn't even realize, but that is something that I love about where we call home when we're not on the road or hosting events or on tour in the backcountry is this beautiful piece of property, nine acres out in Julian, California. It's in the mountains east of San Diego. Our friends Sue and Dustin own it and they call it the reggae ranch and it's, they're like making a live music venue and all this stuff, but it's nine acres and it's out in the middle of nowhere. Like there is not a soul in sight. 
And in the winter, this, you go up the mountain over to the Manzanita Groves and the sun sets oh. over San Diego. And then in the summer, you go up the stairs. It's like this little spiral staircase up the moon tower. And there's this view over the valley and the sun sets over like Oceanside, Carlsbad, California. I had like, I am a sucker for a sunset. I always have been, especially when I met my friend Adam back in 2011. He, he used to say, you only get so many sunsets. And it's a title of the chapter of one of my, or one of the chapters in my book. It's a phrase that I hold near and dear to my heart, but I never had been in a place long enough or paid attention long enough to see how the sunset shifts back and forth over the course of the year. Like, I love paying attention to the moon. I think it's so interesting to watch the moon rise and set, but I had never noticed like the moon doesn't rise at the same time every day until I lived in a place where there was nothing else to do but observe nature. So yes. we're really fortunate. We're out in the sticks and like, it's nothing but nature. But I love that you're bringing it back to just an urban green space, like the park down the street from, well, now everybody's working from home, but like, especially important as people start to go back to offices, start to go back to school, whenever that is, whatever that looks like. And especially now in quarantine, like find that place. And it doesn't have to be, you don't have to drive hours to go find something. It could just be a tree that you can like lean up against with and like make friends with. Like I, I used to think it was kind of silly, but like Barry and I were like, Oh, hi buddies. Every time we see animals like cross the trail, we're just yeah. like, Oh, these are our friends. Like they live here. So do we like, we're so as humans, we are so disconnected from nature, but we're, we are nature. Like we're not different from it. We are part of it. And I, th I saw a really interesting poster in an REI store that I spoke at last year that said 90 or Americans spend 95% of their time inside. Yeah. It, like we go from, and not so much these days because everybody's in various states of like quarantine and how we move around has really changed in the last six months. But I mean, you wake up, you're in a box, your house is a box, and then you get in your car, your car is a box, and then you go to your office or your school or wherever you're going. And that's a box. Like, unless you purposefully choose a career that is rooted in spending time outside, whether that's construction or outdoor instruction or a ski lift operator, like we are never outside unless we actively choose to be. And I feel like we get our love for being outside, like beat out of us after recess, right? Like it's like after that, you have to consciously choose and make time for it. So I just love how, how simple it can be to find that connection with nature just right down the road at a little park. That's so cool. And I have to know, you're going to have to tell me about what it's like in winter in your spot. I'm so interested to hear. I'm really excited too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's been kind of the magic of it. Like I really have a heart for this place. I think particularly because you can see like the gravel pit from it. Yeah. You know? It's like, this is a real, like, and this, there's this little Island here. Like this yeah. is really special. Yeah. Well, and I, I think one of the cool things too, is like, if you're going and finding a space, if you are around trees, like look and see if there are nests, because yeah. I have never witnessed the migration of a bird, the building of a nest, the laying of the eggs, laying on the eggs and then hatching. And then the babies getting fed and then like learning how to flap their wings. I saw two cycles of that this year. They mm. have this, there's this one corner of the moon tower out at the ranch where birds built, it's like little, um, they're, uh, wrens. Yeah, little wrens, and they built this little nest. And like, I didn't get to see them fly away, but I saw everything from like building the nest to like them learning how to flap their wings. And then there's this hammock, and we would just like, I go up there and sit every day. And like, it's one of my morning routine type things. And during the spring, it's like 
you hear all the birds and their calls are loudest in the morning. It's like the symphony of birds in the morning. And then again at night, it's really, really loud. And then throughout the day, you hear like little boop, 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 boop. It's just, it's so cool. And it's yeah. stuff that I would never otherwise pay attention to. But like, that doesn't have to be exclusively for people that live on big chunks of land. Like you can find that park and find that tree and see if there's a nest. And then like, when you go visit, like see what's up with the nest. Like, yeah. are there babies in there? Like you might get to see them fly away. It's one of the coolest things ever to see a bird leave the nest. It's wild. Yeah. 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 I mean, raccoons, tracks, yeah. I think a big, tracks a big are really cool. Yeah. Wilderness awareness school works with this tracking and learning about tracks. I mean, the weather, too is with us, you know? Yeah. And there's lots of looking up citizen science, like different ways you can get involved by tracking, you know, bee populations and bird populations and plants, what plants are in your area. So there's there's a lot of ways to just really connect. And I think also, you know, when we do go on our hikes, taking time to build and fortify that relationship of like who really lives here. Right. Finding out. And I'm I my husband makes fun of me for this, but I'm really, I am a person of repetition. Like I love, I have my same few trails that I really like to go to. And I've been this way everywhere I live that it's like, those are the places I want to go. Yeah. And it's like that depth of relationship, you know? Like and really I know, in. I know that there's a app, the one that I'm familiar with is iNaturalist. Are there yeah. other apps that you recommend for like, That's I the one that I'm okay. aware of as well. Cool. Yeah. So if you're watching and you're like, what is this plant that's in my backyard? Yeah. iNaturalist is a great app. You can take a picture of it. And it's really helpful for, sci for the scientists that are within that um, community because it helps them tra uh, track invasive species. It helps them track like migration. So um, it's a really cool and it's just a really neat way to like get familiar with what's going on around you. So man, I love it. Any uh, parting words of wisdom or anything else that you'd like to share before we open it up for Q&A? Um, who? Yeah, I didn't anticipate that coming up. <laughs> yeah, I think my biggest piece, Sydney, is just really encouraging people to get outside and to not feel like they have to um, do something huge at first, you know, that it really can be like, oh, wait, that's a robin, you know, and learn about robins. You know, it can be just a one, one little piece and let that be guided by curiosity and liveliness and interest. Boom. Oh, I love it so much. All right, uh, Zoom folks, if you have questions, pop on your cameras. Let's do a little Q&A with Emily here. Do we have any questions on the YouTubes? All right, let me check some other things here. Not all at once, fam. All right, well, if nobody has questions, then pop on your cameras and we'll do the uh, group gratitude circle and then we'll close it out. Awesome. Thank you for joining us around the virtual campfire. Sometimes we talk about heavy topics. Sometimes we tell poop stories. 
But regardless of what we've discussed, we always like to end the show on a high note. At the end of our live broadcasts, we invite our community to share what they're grateful for in a segment called the Group Gratitude Circle. Every week, I'm thankful for you. Thank you for taking time out of your busy life to connect with us and witness these stories of hope, healing, and inspiration in the outdoors. If you'd like to gather with us around the campfire live each week, join the Hiking My Feelings virtual campfire VIPs. If this were a legit talk show, you'd be sitting in our studio audience. We haven't been picked up by a major network yet, so for now, we gather on Zoom. Here, you can connect with the community before and after the broadcast, hang out for soundcheck when we have musical guests, participate in the Q&A, join in on the group gratitude circle, and be eligible to receive prizes and gifts from our sponsors, partners, and guests. Learn more and join us at hikingmyfeelings.org campfire. Don't forget to leave a review, subscribe, and share this episode with your friends, family, colleagues, and anyone else who could use a dose of community and connection. Follow us on Instagram, we're at hikingmyfeelings, and you can tag your journey with hashtag hikingmyfeelings. And if you're picking up what we're putting down and you want to be part of this movement, join the Hiking My Feelings family at family.hikingmyfeelings.org. In case nobody told you lately, you are a brilliant human who is destined to do epic things in this world. Join us next week for more stories of hope, healing, and inspiration in the outdoors. Until then, happy trails!